This is an ABC podcast. You know, it's one of the great ironies of doing a show about everything that in the end it's usually about nothing. Um, <laughs> welcome to the minefield. <laughs> you did it! Yeah. You did it! <laughs> oh, Scott, I'm so glad. Scott, you've broken the fourth wall. That's my co-host, oh, Scott sorry. Stevens, by the I'm way. I'm sorry. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Uh, this is the minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. You'll see why I said what I said in just a moment. My joy is complete. <laughs> Good. Do you think it's a fair summary, though, of the show? Our oh, show, yeah. I mean? Yeah. yeah. I, look, what I've always thought is anyone who listens to this show has to believe. And if we've given them any other sense, then, you know, woe betide us. That we really do take what we discuss seriously. Even when we're discussing silly things like emojis, we really are taking the discussion seriously. It's not, it's not frivolous. It's not intellectual gymnastics. We have moments of um, frivolity, but generally, We have moments yes. of, of, of frivolity, but the moments of frivolity, dare I say it, are pedagogical. Because what we're trying to do is to lead one another and hopefully our listeners into believing that the heavy stuff we're talking about isn't heavy after all, that has something intimately to do with everyday life and normal conversation. So hopefully it's one of those ways that we try to draw people in rather than <laughs> simply, you know, discussing nothing. But, I mean, what, 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 Willie, was it a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, that we talked about Seinfeld? Oh, um, that was ages ago, yeah. But we had to come back to it, hence the show that's about everything ultimately coming back to being about nothing. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you did that. Well, perhaps perhaps I'm caught in a nihilist trap here because in the end what I'm saying is whether you think you're about something or you're yeah. about nothing, you're in the end about nothing. In, unless you have a very clear sort of epistemological commitment and that's what you're about. Hmm. We're, we're talking about nihilism hmm. or nihilism, however one wants to pronounce it. My... When I see the word in my head, I say nihilism. Do yeah. you go with nihilism? I always say yeah. nihilism, yeah. Yeah. I think it comes from a commitment to the Latin, which is actually nihil. Right. I anyway. really don't have that commitment. Anyway. I don't. But it is, it, it, is, it is a philosophical and a moral topic. I've got to say, Waleed, that confuses me, attracts me, bewilders me, leaves me at once perplexed, confused, and wondering about what it all means. I don't know if you remember, I think it was two years ago, two and a half years ago, we did a show about morally tainted artists. Yes. Um, and, and morally tainted art and morally tainted uh, philosophers and morally tainted products. And I remember feeling at the initial stages of that show that I have a few hunches. There are a few things that I kind of feel sort of strongly about, but I don't know how to integrate that into any kind of total moral or philosophical commitment. And I remember feeling at the beginning of that show like I was standing on a precipice. I've got no idea where this all goes. Can I say this is the second show <laughs> in three that where I feel exactly the same way. Did that show work out all right for you? The show was great. Okay. I loved it. I learned so much during it. So this is, I don't know, I'm, I, I don't really care if you get anything out of this or our guests in, enjoy it. I, I just hope that this is something that leads to my own personal edification and clarity. And if that happens, then I'll be happy. <laughs> okay, excellent. So I should say we got here not just by mentioning Seinfeld, but also by mentioning Batman. Yeah. And not specific Batman, but, but the Joker. Hmm. Batman's probably arch nemesis. He has several nemeses, but mm. this is the main one. None more, none more archetypal, none more iconic. No, and none more philosophically interesting, I think. That's right. And psychologically interesting than the Joker. Why? Um, Tell us why. 
Well, because I feel like what the jo- the Joker's a great villain in that the Joker is sacrificial. He wants to sacrifice himself for the sake of making a point. He wants Batman to kill him. I mean, mm. I suppose there are different versions of the Joker, but if you mm. take the broad canon, that's that's the idea, right? Because if Batman kills him, then he's proven that Batman's no better than him. Mm. And his main critique, which, you know, if you need a shorthand version of this, you can see Heath Ledger's portrayal, um, is that all of the moral codes by which we live are just stupid and arbitrary and the only smart people uh, and the only honest people are the ones who refuse to live by any such code, right? Hence his agent of chaos type mm. idea. Mm. Would you say that's a neat enough approximation of nihilism? Uh, look, I do, but only if you give Batman his due. Because it's not just that Batman stands for a code or an ethical system. In many respects, Batman stands for the highest ethical code, an ethical code that is even above that of the law. So this is why on previous shows, I think we've discussed Batman as the great Kantian superhero. Mm. Because for, for him, there is a categorical line. There is an absolute rule that cannot be broken Otherwise, everything falls. And that's why in some of the more recent iterations of the Batman, some of them kind of done okay, some of them done a little bit better than okay, some of them done terribly. Um, Batman discovers, for instance, after waking up from a hallucinating dream, he discovers that he's killed the Joker. Uh, Or has he killed the Joker? And then the next eight volumes are devoted to him trying to solve a crime that it looks like he's committed. Right. And so because the relevant thing is his rule is that he won't kill anybody. He will not kill. Which is why the Joker wants him to kill him. Yeah, yeah. So, but, But I think the important thing for Batman is this rule that one must not kill. It's almost as if that rule has a kind of transcendental guarantee. So not only is the rule, remember this is Kant's great point, that if one wants a rule to be a moral rule, then one must be prepared for that rule to be universalizable for everybody to follow. There there can't be exceptions if you want this in fact to be a moral rule. You need to expect everybody to live by this principle. Mm -hmm. And the thing that Batman has hung his entire project, his, speaking of sacrifice, I mean his self-sacrificial lifelong project to try to redeem Gotham City, to break the law in doing so, to bend the rules as far as they go, the one thing that that's predicated on is the existence of this one rule that nothing is more precious, nothing is more important than the guarantee of life. So much so that all of society, the possibility of a just society, hangs on the preservation. And so you're right. What Joker there stands for is the artificiality, uh, the non-existence, not just of the rule itself, but of anything like a transcendental guarantee, whether that guarantee be in the cosmos, in the starry heavens, as Kant put it, or in the unbreakability of human character. And I think here's where I'm not sure if Batman believes in the universal law written in the heavens. He certainly believes that his character is strong enough and that his character needs to be strong enough to stand by this particular rule. Yes, otherwise he becomes the same as the people who killed his parents. Yes. The person who killed his parents. Um, So... Projecting this now onto nihilism, at what point are you prepared to what, – what do you think nihilism requires you not – I was going to say to believe – not yeah. to believe? Does it require the rejection of any notion of a transcendental truth or a transcendent realm? 
Um, see, this is this is difficult. Okay. Because I, I think I mean there there's nihilism, there are nihilisms. I think the right. one thing that all nihilisms have in common. You can say nihilism, is, by the way. Here, I can, I can okay. feel you forcing I'll, yourself. Not can to, I? Yeah. I want, yeah. The one thing that nihilisms all have in common, I think, is the refusal, the disbelief of the comfort of something like a transcendental guarantee. So, so, so for instance, just recently we talked to Charles McKinney uh, from Rhodes College following the, uh, the conviction of Derek Chauvin over the murder of George Floyd. And he brought up on several occasions Martin Luther King Jr. Remember Martin Luther King's phrase about the arc of the universe. Mm. And not just there being an arc of the universe, but the, the arc of the universe, even if it zigzags, it ultimately has a telos in the realization of justice. I think that is the thing, Waleed, that nihilism must refuse, that undergirding our efforts and at the end of our aspirations lay something that guarantees that our efforts, our steps towards progress, our attempts at self-betterment have some guarantee outside of themselves that means that even if we fail individually, our collective efforts won't. Even if we stumble individually, the sum total of our efforts will finally be realized. And what undergirds all that, of course, is that there is something like meaning. There is something like a capital T telos, an end to all these things, uh, that means that our individual lives will not ultimately have been in vain. What I think a if there's miserable one thing, way to live. Well. And in the service of something that is in itself contestable. Hmm. Like I get the you see, that's where I'm not sure. That's where I'm not sure. Well, you think it isn't contestable? Uh, uh, I don't think it's a miserable way to live. Really? And in fact, I yes. And the more I think about it, my concern is that faith in a telos, faith in some providential guarantee of our efforts, can ultimately take the form of almost a form of moral idolatry that makes one not responsible or one not necessarily responsible for one's actions, the success or failure of one's actions, and ultimately can give one's own motivations, one's own sense of what justice looks like or what the good looks like, almost a kind of idolatrous hue. Hang on. Where Sorry, I didn't mean this to. Is a much, this is a much longer argument, but this is my I, – I don't think that the lack of a transcendental guarantee is the end of a defensible conception of the moral life. Guarantee of what? That life has a meaning, that our efforts have a capital T telos or a capital P purpose, uh, that the arc of the universe or that the universe has an arc and that it necessarily leads to justice. These are different things though now. You're conflating different positions. No, not necessarily. Yeah, you are. You, no. you, you can believe that there is a telos to things, that life has a meaning that there is some kind of transcendental control of things, but not that the arc of the universe bends towards justice. Oh, no. They're not that's the same true. thing. No, they're not. No, they're not. That's, that, that's true. But they are expressions of the same confidence, the same hope, the same comfort, the same support, which I think this idea, and I've talked about it on other episodes we've done, this kind of reliance on what could be called a vertical transcendental that my 
behavior, my conception of the good, my idea of progress has its basis. It has its support in a rule, a concept of meaning that if you like, instead of going all the way down, goes all the way up, you know? Mm. I don't think that more and more I'm thinking that that can be really dangerous, that kind of vertical transcendental. And I'm thinking that more and more that can actually be deleterious to the forms of, of immediate obligation, what might be called a kind of horizontal transcendence that lay before us all the time in our interactions I with th- one I another. think this is a false binary that you're setting up. When did you begin this um, excursion into atheism, Scott? Oh, no, Waleed, come on. No, come on. That, no I'm, that's what I'm hearing. No, no. What, what it is is a profound fear of idolatry, of moral idolatry, which is the assuredness that one's moral position, one's conception of the good life, one's idea of meaning and of, and of the telos towards which all things tend, the extent to which that then gets folded into I'm on the right side of history, which therefore leaves to the side those invitations that lay everywhere around us to, ge- to join into genuine, potentially transformative conversation. Can I, can I put things to you this way, Walid? You may hate this, and I'm, 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 I'm happy to risk it. <laughs> okay. okay. So, John Rawls, we are a long way from Seinfeld. I wouldn't mind bringing things back to Seinfeld. Well, no, but in some ways, that was just the excuse to get to here. Yeah, it was. So, so, so John Rawls had this question, which he posed with kind of mortal seriousness, and it went like this. Can one live in a robust democracy, in a healthy democracy, with others whom one is convinced are destined to eternal damnation. Mm. And he actually meant it not as a policing of one's deepest beliefs, but as a way of testing or pressing this idea. What incentive is there for me to engage in rich, robust, potentially transformative deliberation, conversation with others when I believe that the beliefs of others are so internally flawed, so out of step with the meaning of the universe that that belief is going to take them past the other side of salvation. What, what is there for me to learn from somebody who is destined for hell? And that sounds like, I mean, it, it sounds like a deliberately kind of hyperbolic or needlessly blunt thought experiment. But, but to my mind, if there's nothing for me really to learn from conversation, deliberation, compromise with others, if there's nothing about that process that leads to a kind of moral enlargement of oneself, even a moral reform of oneself, then what's the point in doing it apart from the momentary pleasure, maybe the momentary comfort or convenience of living in a degree of temporary peace with others? Yeah, I, I just think it's a bit of a silly question. Okay. Because I think damnation does not imply that one has nothing to contribute or that there is nothing that you can learn from somebody. Mm -hmm. So to me, I mean, it's very hard for me to access this kind of question because it sounds to me like a, like quite a Christian question. (laughs) (laughs) Which was, of course, John Rawls's background. Right. Yeah. And I don't mean that as a slight on anything. I just mean that it just strikes me as that sort of like it comes out of that sort of 
uh, worldview, I suppose. I'm not yeah. sure how else to explain it. But that there are the saved and the damned and that these are easily discernible and that therefore there is no correspondence that need be entered into. That, that just seems very alien to me. Mm. So the the idea that, first of all, one can be assured of one's own salvation to such an extent that they have nothing to learn is just something I can't latch on to. Mm. Because every element of that is something I can't be confident of. I can't be confident of my salvation. I can't be confident of your damnation. And even if I were to presuppose those two things, I can't be confident that there is nothing in you that would augment my understanding or give me something beneficial. So in other words, there is benefit distributed all over the place. Mm, Why should I presume that that benefit has only been distributed on one axis to do with my own judgments of salvation and damnation. And I think once you think about it that way, which is the only way I really can think about it, it becomes a silly question. Okay, perfect. Then take the dimensions of heaven and hell out of this or damnation and salvation out of this. And make it like people on the wrong side of history and the right side of history. Yes, but that's why I think that's a terrible way to look at things. I'm a bit allergic to that phrase, the, the right side of history, as though we're capable of judging it. Yeah. And although history itself isn't fluid and that one's on the wrong side of history one moment and the right side of history another, depending on how history evolves and who gets to tell what history and all that sort of stuff. I just, yes, I think there is a kind of cosmic political arrogance about that. Yes, absolutely. Now, press this one step further yeah. and say that there is no capital T telos, but that there are small t teloi, which is the plural yeah. in Greek of telos, and that these... These teloi, these goals, these ends are things that we only ever discover along the way through imaginative, mutually vulnerable, mutually responsive, mutually exposed interactions with people in a political or social community into which we've been thrown. And that what we come to discover through our real interactions with people, this is why I'm increasingly thinking about democracy, democratic life, and the nature of democratic organization as really as a kind of incubator of everything that is most precious in the task of moral formation. We are thrown with other human beings in a common space and through the contingency of that thrownness, through our vulnerable interactions with people, believing that while this is something that I might value, I may be wrong. And while I might think that they're wrong, through the process of interaction, I discover something that I never could have discovered on my own. There is something in that that doesn't have a goal, that doesn't have a final meaning to it, but there's something about both the contingent and the experimental quality of those interactions that constitute anything that we can then come to claim as a quote-unquote meaning in life. That, in fact, Waleed, is a version of, and I think a highly defensible, version of nihilism. I just don't think it is. I think, I think it's the presence of a telos that makes those interactions meaningful. It may, okay. may, it may not be a telos that we can be a thousand percent confident we have apprehended, but it has to be there. Okay, if wonderful. We, if we remove... I think you're right. I, I actually think you're right. But, but would you be prepared to try to sketch what that telos might be, what it's, even its rudiments might be? Because this is what leaves me confused or... But, uh, well, I just think that at that point it becomes a, uh, I don't know, a conversation that goes nowhere because 
we'll just put our various telloi on the table and then say oh, well, no, that's no, not mine. Sorry. And then... I phrased it wrong, Willie. What, what I mean is for there to be this belief, this confidence, this conviction yep. that through vulnerable, open, mutually responsive conversation where the end isn't determined in advance with another human being, it seems to me that the one thing that needs to be predicated on is that there is, in fact, something so transcendent, so unextinguishable, so impervious to grades or race or classes or gender or anything else that might, that might sort of uh, individually define individual persons, that there is something transcendent in the human other that makes that, – I mean, that ultimately is the guarantee. Um, but that's only a guarantee that can be discovered – in the process, although it also, I suppose, forms the conditions of possibility for any kind of conversation to take place. In other words, that means that there is something so transcendent in my conversation partner that nothing in them is beyond redemption. Nothing in yes. them is beyond the point of learning. Nothing sure. in them is beyond the point of forgiveness or community. Does that then undermine the claim of nihilism? Possibly. Yeah, I think that has nothing to do with nihilism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just but is, is it corrosive? As soon as you say there's something transcendental yes. in another human being, are you saying that's you've not, just argued yourself out of nihilism? Yeah, okay. that, that's my that, that's my proposition for now. Shall I say? Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. We'll Jeez, have a guest who'll sort us out and might tell us why I've got that wrong. Um, this is the Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN. You might be doing that right now, in which case, thank you. But you can also listen to this as a podcast at your convenience. So on the ABC Listen app, anytime you like. Um, or if you do listen to podcasts, you can follow The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. We have a guest, Scott. Yes, we do. Tracy Lanera is research fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame in Australia. She's the incoming associate professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut, the home, by the way, of the world's greatest women's basketball program, Go Huskies. Uh, she's the author of a couple wonderful books, one entitled Richard Rorty, Outgrowing Modern Nihilism, and she's co-author with James Tartaglia of A Defensive Nihilism. That puts you square in the middle of our list of the people we would most love to speak to, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. A pleasure to be here, Scott and Walid. And yes, I'm ready to add to your confusion and bewilderment about nothing. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, after that introduction, Tracy, that's all we have time for. So thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> So, 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 Tracy, one of the many things, and I, I do feel, I, I know you're not eager to talk about Seinfeld, but I, I do feel that at some stage Seinfeld's going to have to reintroduce himself because it, see, it does seem to me, by the way, that Seinfeld does represent the form of casual or everyday or bourgeois nihilism that most of us, in fact, live. And while, you know, it's easy in some ways to talk about Batman and Joker, that's probably more apropos to, to the topic. But, Tracy, one of the many things that I learned from, especially your, your, your book on Rorty, um, you produce a lovely kind of taxonomy of the types of nihilism. And, and some of them, I think it's probably fair to say, really are corrosive to any robust conception of the moral life. Some of them far less so. Where do you want to take us? Do you want to step us through types of nihilism or do you think it's better to take us in a completely different direction? 
Um, I think I'm ready to actually comment on Seinfeld and the Joker. Oh, okay. yes. Wow. Even better. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I, I thought the conversation between the two of you is, was really fascinating. And what was going on in my mind was that it might be helpful to actually distinguish as philosophers um, like the three of us usually do, distinguish between what kind of nihilism is being discussed in the conversation. So one way of thinking about nihilism in the conversation is seeing nihilism as an experience. And the experience that's being talked about here is the experience of existential despair, right? So what I was kind of getting at in this final conversation is that it's a kind of like a show that criticizes the triviality and, you know, the shallowness of everyday life. Like, no matter how hard you strive, like, you seem to just be going around in circles. That seems to be, like, meaningless, kind of like. It is, but, but there is one other crucial dimension to it that Waleed rightly insisted on. I can't remember, Waleed, if this was on air or off air. But the other thing that resolutely does not happen in Seinfeld is anything like moral progress or development in the characters. The characters no, that you no, that have was... at the beginning of the show are the same internally morally impoverished, self-absorbed in characters. In fact, that was, I think that was the motto of the writers, wasn't it? Nobody learns, yeah, nobody right. grows. Nobody learns anything that's right. Yeah. So there's no growth. There's no moral growth. There's no moral individual progress. And yeah, and, and I can see that being, you know, a, a great example, a, a great argument on media in, in media about what nihilism is supposed to be. And then the other end of the scale, on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, the Joker who's arguing that because morality is arbitrary, because life really has no objective purpose, no fundamental value. The only way to, to assert your individuality in this kind of life is just to, you know, destroy everything, be be the force of destruction. That's the only way you can assert any sense of individual authenticity in a life that's fundamentally meaningless. And all of those things are real. Like all of those things are popular depictions of what nihilism is. And those are the things that people experience. Like that's what makes the idea of nihilism really, really scary. But I also want to distinguish between nihilism or nihilism as an experience versus nihilism as an idea or as a concept. Because if you start thinking of it that way, that's where the taxonomy of what the different kinds of nihilisms would be really useful in philosophy. So basically, there are different kinds of nihilisms in philosophy. One, there's what philosophers call the epistemological nihilism, where you deny any possibility of knowledge. You just don't know what's real and what isn't real. There's theological knowledge, um, nihilism, where you deny the reality of truth. There's metaphysical or ontological nihilism, where do you, you deny the reality of an independently existing world. And there's the more popular ethical or moral form of nihilism, where you deny the existence of moral values. And that's the really that's really the kind of nihilism that I think scares a lot of people when, when nihilism is weaponized, for instance, in a in a piece or in a public philosophy essay. It's like, whoa, what is that? Um, I don't want to read this person anymore. This person's immoral. Um, and there are other kinds as well, like aesthetic nihilism or logical nihilism. But what's really interesting here is that how all of those different things are actually related to the experience of nihilism that I was talking about earlier. So for some 
not for some reason, but for valid reasons. Like those things are connected to the experience of existential nihilism, this this sense of emptiness or pointlessness of life. And I want to quote um, Karen Carr here, who wrote The Banalization of Nihilism, which kind of explains how all of this comes come together. She says, it is because we believe there is no truth that we conclude the world is pointless. It is because we think that knowledge is mere illusion, that we describe life as meaningless. It is because we see no moral fabric in the universe, that we see our existence as without value. The despair of existential nihilism is parasitic on one of the other logically prior form. So... Mm. When we start like navigating the terrain of the different kinds of nihilisms, I think it puts us in a better position to start, you know, kind of like cleaning the desk. Like, okay, what really is the nothing that we're truly concerned about here? But, but see, what I get from that quote, Tracy, is mm-hmm. that the attempt to separate them out into different kinds of nihilisms is artificial. That when you begin with one, you end up with the other. I mean, particularly the way that quote ends, that seems to be where it's it's heading. You might say that one form of nihilism is epistemologically or even ontologically prior to another, but it leads to the next one, whatever way you want to order them. And so it becomes, in a way, a total package. Um, but that's also where I, like, that's also the part that I'm critical of. Like, right. are we okay. a package? Like, this one form of nihilism, so say, denying the existence of a fundamental truth, necessarily lead to despair or necessarily lead to destruction. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking no. So um, one clever thing that um, Richard Rorty, the, the American pragmatist I work on, he says something like, you can tell um, Nietzsche that, um, it doesn't matter if God is dead. It's okay. We'll still survive. Or it doesn't matter if, you know, you can tell Heidegger that you don't have to be an authentic Dasein and the world will go on. And like that kind of appeals to me because if you don't belong to, you know, if you're not raised in the Western tradition of philosophizing, if say you were raised in a polytheistic community where the idea of an omniscient, omnibenevolent God doesn't exist in your, you know, conceptual paradigm, then these issues wouldn't matter. So you were right in saying that this sounds super religious, right? This seems to be, as Rorty would even say, super ontotheological, because you do kind of recognize later on that the question of nihilism does arise um, from very specific historical philosophical tradition. And once you start divorcing and parsing those different elements, then you kind of like are able to look for different ways of thinking about the real claims of nihilism. Yeah, but it's, it strikes me, it, do, it doesn't seem to me that you would have to sit merely in a, some polytheistic tradition to find that this is not very useful to you. This seems to me a uniquely Western sort of a problem, subject perhaps to its dissemination through globalization. But, but really, uh, I don't know, maybe this is all very simplistic of me, but this sort of Heideggerian God-shaped hole that um, he wants to fill with authenticity, but that so much of particularly Western Europe wants to fill with something because mm. it's lost its faith in in Christianity and therefore lost its faith in some kind of more transcendental understanding of, of the world. It's that God-shaped hole that, that gives rise to or gives birth to these kinds of philosophical, even epistemological excursions. 
I, I can just imagine most people who sit outside of that, and I would put myself in that category, I just look upon this with bewilderment. I'm like, okay, so this is just another futile attempt to replace something that, that you've lost and you will never replace it. You will never find the thing that replaces it. You know um, what's the thing? That's actually the argument of my book. I think if you just summarize <laughs> Right. Okay. Nicely that, done, Willie. Yeah, I know. Because um, that is what I'm trying to get at. So there is this entire tradition in Western philosophy that is just obsessed about overcoming nihilism. That it, it's rooted in the idea that you know, our, our lives are so trivial and so meaningless that we need something to fill the void. And that something cannot possibly be anything else other than the non-human. That we are just so fragile and so incomplete and so weak and so vulnerable that we need something to save us. We need some redemptive power to fill that void. And that has mutated so much in the history of Western philosophy, from the idea of God to the idea of having universal moral values to the idea that we need transcultural notions of validity in order for us to be able to say, I know what the truth is, or I know what the good is, or I know what the purpose of human life is. But what, you know, the, the version of thinking in a nihilistic way of saying that, you know, life is meaningless, that there isn't like an ultimate blueprint or purpose or a mirror of nature that we need to crack or we need to expose or we need to see in order for us to keep on living. Like, I think there's something kind of liberating in being able to set aside thousands and thousands of years of thinking just one way in that, you know, warlike, I need to overcome my meaninglessness into recognizing, but Life has never been meaningless. Like we've always been relating with other people. We have our history. We have our politics. We have responsibilities and duties to other people. Like don't have to be accountable to some incredible, inaccessible conception of truth. We have to be accountable to other people. So there is to some extent, I think, a moral lesson in viewing things this way too. Except Heidegger provides the warning, doesn't he? I mean... (laughs) There's this God-shaped hole, we have to fill it with authenticity, and in the end, he veers off into Nazism. It seems to me that, I I, I don't know, I I don't see it as an accident that Europe ended up plunging headlong into various fascistic ideas in the 20th century, because that's actually a very effective way to fill that God-shaped hole. I know this is sort of almost a radically subversive and unpopular view in a world and in a society that seems to view religion as the root of all evil rather than its absence. But I just think that the record of, of 20th century Europe is such a compelling one to think about in, in that regard. And even if you want to fill it in the way that you're talking about, Tracy, which I think is a really interesting way to try to fill it, well, there's an argument that Nazism is a version of that. <laughs> the, the flip side of all kinds, all these sort of extreme fascistic type politics or all forms of political extremism. I mean, we talk about them as though they are ideologies of hate and that is a way of characterising them. But they are also ideologies of love. It's just mm. that the love is constrained, uh, confined to a particular in-group. And so it all becomes about the obligations that I owe horizontally to all these people. Well, well, hang on, because it's, sorry, it's not just ideologies of, of love, albeit, you know, the community owing that love or being owed that love is just very, very restricted. It's that these are also ideologies of meaning. No, that, um, that's, that my are, that's my point. That's my point. When you try to fill the, the 
absence of meaning with some other kind of more mundane secular notion, it seems to me that all kinds of deformities get thrown up in this way. Meaning is the very thing it provides. I, I, ever since I saw Donald, I went to a Donald Trump rally before he was elected, that's when the moment hit me. He gives meaning. Mm, that's right. And, and progressive politics is failing. It, like it, given the state of conservative politics in the party political sense uh, around the world, it is astonishing that they're winning elections, right? <laughs> it's astonishing that, that progressives are managing to lose elections to these people. But I think one of the reason is that progressive politics right now isn't offering anything that approximates meaning, is it? Mm, that's exactly right. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined today by Tracy Lanera, who's a research fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame in Australia and is about to head off overseas, um, which is a real shame for us, but we managed to nab her in time. Sorry, I've dominated, Scott. No, no. Look, uh, Tracy, I've, uh, I've got a slightly different direction to take us off on, but why don't you go ahead and if you want to take a moment to respond to what Walid was just saying before. Okay. Um, I think it's really interesting that you put Heidegger into the equation because I think um, what's kind of missing in the conversation, at least is like the jump from the religious to the secular. And I think both Nietzsche and Heidegger do kind of like offer a reason why those mutations became so like popular or so convincing. Why Nazism, for instance, became a convincing political tool for human beings to start experiencing meaning. And a part of that story has something to do with what happened in the Enlightenment. Um, and mm -hmm. it's the idea that now that we're, you know, We've become woke. <laughs> the, the the that particular century of in, like the rise of these enlightened intellectuals. They were brave enough to finally say, "But you know what? Like all of like we can figure things out on our own. We can get rid of this dogmatic slumber that we've all been in under the curse of Western religion, and we actually have the ability to rationalize, to be able to reason what's moral and what's immoral, to identify what's good or what's not. And according to Nietzsche, there's actually something wrong with that, because what happened was that the replacement for God became human reason or became like human beings. Um, the source of that became incredibly anthropocentric. And what they're criticizing um, is that an anthropocentric source of meaning is actually unsustainable. Because like when we keep on depending on other people, people have a very good way of letting us down, right? <laughs> so, even, so even if you have like an authoritarian group that's saying we're strong and we're going to conquer the entirety of Europe um, at the expense of everyone else, like even those things fail. Um, and that's why nihilism keeps persisting. It's it's a reaction to crisis that it, it's realizing how frail and vulnerable we are because the replacement for God that we've put in God's place wasn't good enough, wasn't strong enough. So there's this, in, 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 at least in the book that I wrote, like I was saying that there's that impulse, that impulse, that infantile need for security and for comfort. That is what keeps pushing people to look for meaning, to look for, to look for assurance 
that things are going to be all right. And I'm just wondering, like both philosophically and practically, what would the world look like when we finally start living in such a way where we know that that comfort won't be provided by something external or by something that's stronger than us. It's just that we have to live, learn to live with contingency and we have to live with the fact that we might not have enough for the next day. And that's okay. Um, and I think that there's something liberatory about that. So that's, I suppose, like a long response to what I thought would have been a short response to what you were saying. <laughs> See, this is, uh, this is really taken us, I think, Tracy, into really fertile territory. Because while it's quite common, I think, to think about or refer to Nazism, for instance, or Soviet-style totalitarianism as a form of political nihilism. In, in fact, both of them represent precisely the opposite of that. This mm. is the imposition, the political imposition of a meaning that is so great, that is so worthy of any and all sacrifices that need to be made at its altar, that that meaning requires the sacrifice of all other forms of commitment or lower order values that we might be willing to entertain in the meantime. In other words, these are forms not of political nihilism, but of political idolatry. My, my question then, if both of you accept that as a description of what both of those forms of politics might be, and, and what I suspect almost every form of political authoritarianism is, which is, if you like, a form of political providentialism, the imposition of a form of meaning uh, uh, on the plural life of a people that then requires the sacrifice upon the altar of that meaning of every other form of, say, contingent or of everyday value that we would otherwise value as humans. My question is, what then would be a non-idolatrous form of democratic coexistence? What would a form of democratic coexistence look like that neither seeks nor requires a transcendental guarantee, whether it be the arc of history or speaking of political idolatry, is there anything more idolatrous than America's self-conception? of its own providential place within, within world history. I mean, that is, that is the definition of political idolatry. Uh, and it's, of course, something that Rorty argued fiercely against. What would a form of political or democratic coexistence look like that did not require that kind of transcendental or historical or capital M meaning or capital T teleological guarantee? And I guess my, my suspicion then is if we don't find, if we don't need meaning in capital H history or some capital T telos, or uh, could we then find it in the small t teloi, the experimental, mutually transformative, mutually vulnerable, mutually responsive forms of interaction that then take place within a community of equals. But then as soon as I say that, that then means that we're simply shifting the weight of where that groundedness for the community to be able to work morally needs to be. If it's not in history, if it's not in capital H history, then it really should be in something like the capital H human or the capital M neighbor. So I guess, doesn't this mean that however much one might want to argue for a political community that is not grounded in a kind of idolatrous meaning making, it does mean that we have to orient the hierarchy elsewhere. We, we, 
for, for there to be a morally defensible form of coexistence, there needs to be a hierarchy of value. There needs to be something that is the anchor around which everything else is grounded. If that groundedness is not in the sacredness, the transcendent quality of one's neighbor, can it be anchored anywhere else? Wow, you, you've put that question quite elegantly. Um, Scott, I, I, I just hope I can respond approximate such elegance. Um, I want to go back to how you describe the, the conception of the United States, the conception of America, the American idolatry, like the, the, the nation, um, you know, having a destiny, you know, a great destiny, setting it apart from all others. Um, I, I think what what's a really good way of thinking about this idea would be to connect it to how Worthy describes what a self-enlarging impulse might be or a religious mm-hmm. or transcendental impulse might be. So, so he gives us like a distinction. So one is being able to stand in awe of something that's greater than us. So I imagine people who were, you know, part of this community that was trying to make a nation work, right? Like they were galvanized, they were emboldened by the fact that they were engaging in this new experiment, an experiment in which you can create a free and equal country where everyone would have, you know, equal opportunity and that you you, you get what you deserve. Like these are all amazing ambitions and dreams that in prior to the founding of America, one would argue, I mean, even now really, like still unfulfilled. But it's something that's galvanizing. It's something inspirational. But that's distinct from another part of the transcendental spiritual religious impulse, which is, as I've mentioned before, that infantile need. This is what Rorty says in his work, the infantile need for comfort and security, like the assurance in relation to the United States, the American idolatry there, that, you know, this is our destiny, that this is part of history, that even if I fail, the country will still succeed because it's meant to succeed. So that's, I think, what you were getting at when you were saying that. Yeah, yeah, it's participating arc of history. So, so. But, but sorry, sorry, Tracy, there's also something else. And this goes to the fact that America is not just a great religious experiment, but quite specifically a Protestant experiment. One of the things, unfortunately, that goes hand in hand with the American experiment is the belief that belief is enough, uh, yeah. that faith, that faith in the ideal is enough. And what that, and this was, again, Rorty's great critique of America, yeah. that one of the things that belief in the perfectibility of the American experiment and the belief that America is on the right side of capital H history mm-hmm. is that any small I form of injustice or any imperfection that we live with in the meantime, that's just the exception to the rule and that everything else is going to work out as long as we keep believing in the ideal. And I guess one of the things that, I mean, Stanley Cavell argued for this quite beautifully, as did John Rawls, that lived realities create their own internal justifications and their own consolation. So if one lives with the ongoing experience of injustice, of inequality, that can end up in a dysfunctional political community. It can create its own internal forms of alibis. It's ways for people to live with the reality rather than taking the reality of injustice or inequity personally, seriously. And I think that's where that's where this the aspirate the American aspiration really does become a form of political idolatry. If we just believe in the American ideal enough, 
it's enough. Whereas what matters are the lived realities of our common democratic experiment. Yeah, and 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 I think going off on that, um, that's where you really see how this can be mapped um, in terms of like a vertical sense of transcendence, a vertical um, way of justifying the experiment that is the United States, that is America, where, you know, things will become all right anyway, because it's destined to be all right, versus a more horizontal way of thinking about how this experiment could be justified, which is I'm just standing in awe at the very fact that we're able to do this, that we're able to experiment and be able to turn this nation into something that's better than it already is. Um, and I think when we start mapping like those sources of aspiration and sources of inspiration as well into vertical and horizontal lines, which I know you're all also a fan of, Scott, then there's a good way of taking the argument further. There's a good way of thinking about um, aspiration and change, not just in terms of um, transcendental ideals, but in terms of like human, all too human, experimental, um, pragmatic commitments. It still requires some kind of transcendental commitment, though, it seems to me. Like, mm. so in America, the transcendental commitment is very clear in the God-focused language of its yeah. poli- of its civil religion, which, uh, I, by the way, I, I mean, I know I've referred to this before, but Robert Bella's classic essay on that, I think, is, is wonderful in the way that yep. it teases out that the God of American politics is not the same God as the God of any other, of any religion, including Christianity. It's a sort of mm. God that's vacated in contents that you can then, each American can fill in kind of in their own way. Um, or, 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 or really another way of putting it is America doesn't need an established religion because the idea of the nation is the established religion. Yeah. And the, was it the infinite, the germ of infinite progress, I think? Yes. Was it a phrase? Was it a, was it a New York Times edit? Anyway, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that's right. Um, from the 18 something. Um, so they've got that. Probably every nation and probably every, well, many, most empires in history have sort of believed in their own success as being either inevitable or something that will last for a very long time. Um, so there's that. But even if you want to take all that away and say, I'm just going to focus on you know, the wonders of the people around me, etc., the idea of human rights, it kind of needs a transcendental anchor. Like we're, we're seeing that now. In the absence of that, human rights are very easily dispensed with because in the end, on what basis do you assert them? Hmm. I mean, I, I can, yeah, I, I like human rights, but if I've got to torture a few people to save millions of lives, then I'll do that because I'm not actually violating anything sacred because there's nothing left that's sacred. I, I just don't say that you ever get around that problem. Hmm. I mean, it is quite interesting because um, I suppose like, once we start looking at um, the rise and fall of political institutions and communities, right? Like from a from a, the long durée, like you know, um, I, I remember this really interesting phrase from Charles Taylor, and he he asked like, how come one thousand five hundred years ago, the idea of a belief in God was just absolutely indispensable? That if you said that you were a heretic, you would be burnt. Um, whereas now you could say that you're an atheist and people would, well, some people in some communities wouldn't even blink an eye. Like there's a huge, huge waves of transformation that occur in human history that now we can even say that, yes, the United States might 
have been formed in such a, you know, grounded in, in such a religious way, but other nations aren't formed on the basis of that kind of religious idolatry, as has been used um, as a term previously. So, so I, I think that's one way of like thinking about it, that, that we might not have as much resources as we can to say that this is you know the the way that things should go and the second um about um how you know the, the conceptions of human rights and the they need to have a transcendental notion a transcendental conception of but like i'm just wondering now what transcendental means or what the universal means it may not be universal, but uh, yeah. I mean, a, an obvious example is derived from the Christian tradition. Human beings are created in God's image. They therefore carry a sanctity. Mm. Transcendental notion firmly established as a basis for human rights. You can accept it or not, but that's a very firm basis for it. Or in, in fact, in slightly less Christian language, I, I suppose I've always loved Raymond Gators, the term that he's introduced into our moral vocabulary, which is the the inexhaustible, inexpressible preciousness of human beings. And I think there's something, there's something there, even if it operates on the level initially of sentiment. Yeah. And then comes to make its way in the way that we speak to one another, the way that we represent one another, the way that we gaze at one another, the way that we speak of one another, the particular vocabulary we use. I think that then can become something like a transcendental ground yeah. that arises in the midst of this commerce that we use to try to uphold and further give moral basis to our democratic coexistence. That would be, I don't know, maybe something like a crack. Um, sadly, we're out of time, but Tracy, good luck in Connecticut. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for... Go dedicating- Huskies. <laughs> Go Huskies. <laughs> you know, I have to agree. Women's basketball is the best in the United States. That's UConn. <laughs> okay. Well, no doubt uh, we'll track you down when you're over there and get you on the show again at some point anyway, Tracy. But thank you so yeah. much for lending us your expertise today. It's been a, a discussion that exceeded my expectations when we started out talking about Seinfeld and the Joker. So there you go. Um, Tracy Lanera, Research Fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame. That's in Australia. But will soon be the Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now about to conclude. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.